Welcome to episode 58 of the Digital Fabrication Experiment podcast. I'm Winston Moy, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, Eddie Kramer and Chris Lee. We're a couple of machinists, and we'd like to bring you into our conversations about life in the shop and topics in making. Gentlemen, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing pretty good. How about you, Chris? Uh, doing great. What about you, Winston? Life is still busy, but uh, I, I've uh, started relaxing a little more on the weekends. The light at the end of the tunnel is almost here. Hopefully in the next two or three weeks, I can uh, I can fully breathe a sigh of relief and uh, people will know everything that's going on with Nomad. Nice. But that is for another podcast. <laughs> nice, nice. Uh, is there anything you can share now or you want to save it for later? Uh, not. I mean, we've been trickling out a couple details. We're planning on uh, going to 24,000 RPM for the spindle. Uh, should be about close to double-ish the power of the old Nomad. Uh, so just all around, you should be able to take your, your original cutting recipes and just double them. Um, and I think people will find the extra RPM super helpful when you're using like 16th inch, 132nd inch ball end mills, doing some engraving work, 3D uh, contouring stuff. Um, there's a couple guys out there that make like uh, glass stamps or molds in like graphite or brass and... I think uh, for those kinds of applications, um, it'll be really useful to have that RPM. So I'm personally trying to come up with some example projects that I can use to uh, showcase that style toolpath combined with the RPM and uh, uh, include that in a promo video at some point uh, when I start recording in the next week or two once we have the uh, Nomad fully hooked up with all the uh, the bells and whistles with the uh, production-ready panels and uh, front uh, door slash window. So uh, pretty soon I'll be able to start getting back into the video game instead of the uh, uh, the prototyping and R&D and uh, machining stuff phase. I, I mean, one of the things that I was pretty, uh, I was stoked to see was when you guys posted that picture on Carbide 3D Instagram of the new Nomad, but kind of like uh, in that that Apple lighting so to speak. Yeah, that uh, mysterious When I saw that, I was lit. like, I was secretly cheering because I know that's we, something we talked about with Daniel on the podcast and uh, lighting techniques and things like that. So it was yeah, cool to see. Like the, the, the visual presentation of something is uh, something I really want to work on. Um, and we actually have sort of a, a video partner that we've been working with uh, who's uh, done a lot of um, TV stuff. And so he comes with a, a background of like, hey, we got to make sure like, we have good lighting. We have a like uh, someone running camera. Um, so hopefully we see the fruits of that labor in the next month or two. Um, and we, we sort of have a, a different angle on uh, video content for Carbide. Very nice. It'll be a good improvement. Speaking of desktop machines, there's been some big changes in the uh, software side of things. Yeah, the hobby world uh, seems to be... Um, in arms about some changes that Autodesk has made to uh, Fusion 360 lately. To the free license, right? Yeah, the personal license. Uh, so for those that don't know, um, basically Autodesk uh, changed up or shook up their uh, what's included and what's not in the, uh, the Fusion 360 personal license. Um, so the, the core functionality is still the same, but... Um, instead of uh, being able to have unlimited access to documents, you're now restricted to 10 active and editable documents. Uh, the rest get archived, and you can swap them in and out of archive. Uh, 
Um, the types of files you can export are much more restricted. Uh, so you can uh, basically export STL files, uh, native Fusion inventor files, um, but nothing that would make it easy to transfer over to a different CAD software. In the manufacturing side, we get no more multi-axis milling, uh, no more automatic tool change support, so anything with M6, and no more rapid feeds, so nothing with G0. Um, the drawing uh, workspace got nerfed, and you can now no longer render using cloud credits. You're stuck doing local renders. Did I miss anything, guys? Oh, the, the workspaces for generative and simulation were removed. You can't add on any of the uh, extensions, right? With the free license, like you can't have a free license or the personal license and then pay just the cost for like the manufacturing extension. You have to, you can only license that from the, from a paid version of Fusion, which is new. That's a change. Oh, that I didn't know. Yeah. I doubt anyone was doing that, but um, I think that applies to generative also. That makes sense. But I mean, if you're, purchasing a generative design uh, project, I don't know if you're going to be so stingy that you wouldn't pay for the base version of Fusion because those things are like 120 bucks a pop. I mean, if you if you need to be generating generative design, you're already on a different level, right? Like if you've gotten to that point where you need that or your, your product needs that kind of whatever, I, I don't think you're a hobby level guy anymore. And 120, like you said, 120 bucks is not that big of a deal. Most of the stuff they removed is stuff for them that you could live without in a hobby free desktop CNC environment. Um, you know, there's going to be some, some negatives, probably the rapid would be the biggest one that most people are going to notice right away. Um, most of the desktop community is three axis, right? So the, I think the multi-axis stuff, um, is the impacts really going to be on pocket and C users more than anybody else. And uh, anyone with a rotary fourth axis. Yeah, you know, Tormach kind of fits in there too. Um, actually, Tormach users are probably going to be the ones that see the biggest uh, impact now that I think about it. Because there's still, you know, there's probably quite a few non commercial Tormach users out there. And they have, can have tool changers, right? So now their tool changers not going to function without a paid Fusion license if they're using Fusion. And, yeah, so we can we can go through these line by line, but I'm curious, first of all, uh, what your gut reaction was when the news first broke about these changes. Uh, my first like gut reaction was Fusion or Autodesk was kind of walking away from the maker, you know, hobby. Yeah. Um, yeah, after looking over the press release and and the details and the fact, I I don't feel that way anymore. Um, I think I understand where they're, what the challenges they're facing with the product and, and what they're trying to achieve by, uh, tightening up like the restrictions around the, the free license, right? They, they kind of started this a couple of years ago. I think last year they, they tightened up the startup license. It used to be much easier, um, to qualify for that. And it isn't quite as easy anymore. And now they're kind of, you know, closing some of the loopholes or some of the areas that might have been getting exploited uh, by commercial users on the free license or the, I keep saying the free license, but the personal license. I think that kind of guided what they changed. And it seems kind of arbitrary from the 
perspective of a desktop user, but if you kind of look at it in that light, it makes more sense about why they did what they did. Not necessarily make you happier with it, but I kind of see the logic behind it now. Yeah. I mean, when I first uh, saw this, I sort of just left a, an ambiguous post uh, on my Instagram feed, um, just, just saying, like, I have some thoughts. And then someone made a comment that was like, um, yeah, like, they're offending all their customers, blah, blah, blah. And I thought about it for a second. I was like, they're not really offending their customers because the people who this affects are people who are not paying. I agree. And I, I think, you know, the, the product that's still available for personal use is still a very capable product. Uh, if you're a 3D printer user, which is probably a pretty large part of that community, they're going to see very little impact, I would think. Um, it, it really hits the CNC machining functionality a little bit harder. Um, but desktop machines, you're still, you know, you can still make parts with them, right? Um, I think the, the multi-axis stuff, like I wasn't sure at first what that meant. And now I kind of looking through the fact and some of the comments that Autodesk posted to questions, I understand it better now. I thought maybe it was just simultaneous five axis, but it's actually, it is three plus two and fourth, like the wrapped fourth and simu- and all the multi-axis stuff is not going to be in the personal license. So. Anything that touches the tool orientation option. Yeah, that's that's a good way to explain it. Yeah, there's no no tool orientation support in going forward in the personal license. I think that, when does that become effective? I think most of the changes are effective October 1st and then the beginning of January for some of the file-related like limitations on projects and file, like active files, I think comes a little bit later. So I don't know if you guys, you guys probably use Fusion long enough to remember that there used to be a restriction on, I think, the number of projects that you could have in the free version. I think that was actually before my time. It's, I think now it's more file-based. It's not so much, you can have, I think, as many projects as you want. It's the actual Fusion file that you can have, you have a limitation of 10. And if I understood, like, on assemblies, you know, if you have a project that has an assembly file and then the subcomponents, like, those all count. Mm. I think it's it's actual like files like saved in your project folder. Um, so if you have a an assembly and you create the components um, in that same project, those don't count towards your ten active documents. If you um, they're mostly um, restricting xrefs um, or other files that are linked. Um, from different projects. Yeah, and what I didn't understand at first is I was thinking, like, say you had a project that had all the sub-assemblies in their own file, or what would be a Fusion a Fusion project, right? Um, and then you had an assembly file that just brought them all in as XREFs. Um, even if you had, like, 100 components in that assembly, it would still work. You just wouldn't be able to edit the sub-assemblies without managing, you know, how many of them are active, right? So you could have... You could open the assembly document with its hundred xrefs, and the assembly document's going to work fine. Like if you have some meta feature you're editing in there, that just counts as your one, one of your ten documents. Um, but like if you go and now that you can edit xrefs directly from the assembly document, that's where the count starts to play a role. Like it has to be an active document to be able to launch it and edit the subcomponent. But, yeah, well, I mean, it, it makes sense because I've been following along closely. Before we get too deep into the podcast, I do want to throw out that 
um, the underlying reason for all of these changes, um, from what I've heard from people on the inside, is that this was to try and stop commercial abuse, because um, there are a, a large number of users who are uh, not personal users, um, and clearly using some of the more advanced features in Fusion in a perhaps commercial sense. Um, so there, there are two ways you could look at this. One of them is that Autodesk is trying to milk their hobbyist base for more money. Um, the other uh, side is that they're trying to crack down on people who are just freeloading on the free license of Fusion. Uh, the truth probably falls somewhere in between. I'm not here to judge that. But uh, from my analysis, like the perspective that I'm going at this um, is to see how this fits in with their grand scheme of trying to stop abuse. Just wanted to throw that out there. Yeah, it seems like their commitment to supporting the, to always supporting a free tier is still there. Like that was kind of the takeaway from um, reading all the communication they put out about the change. It took a little while to get that message out. It wasn't in the, like, I didn't read it in the first, or it didn't come across in the first announcement that they made. Um, and I think they realized that and they kind of backfilled uh, with some details and a lot of uh, answered a lot of questions, right? They kind of came in the first week. They kind of had to. The uh, The comments on their initial blog post were <laughs> brutal. Yeah. <laughs> not pretty. <laughs> I, I, I remember like when I first saw it, my first initial instinct was, okay, it's finally happening. All right. They're finally doing something about like, because it, it, this is a product. This is a CAD solution cam cad cam solution actually and it can't be free forever right they they need to make money somehow otherwise this thing's going to go away and then i mean most i don't know most hobbyists or people that use it know but like mastercam license is like thousands of dollars for their base product and then if you want fourth axis live tool fifth axis or anything else uh, machine simulation all these things are packages that you add on top of that so by the end of the day if you want full simulation five axis capable like mastercam you're looking at like 15 to 20 grand or something ridiculous like that for one year one year plus you need to pay maintenance for the distributor and then there's like it, it's ridiculous and that's just mastercam like when you start getting into the other cam it, it's even more insane you know like the, the because they're more complicated like esprit or anything else like that so my first initial thought was like okay well how much is it right now? It's like 300 bucks for a year. I'm like, that's literally nothing. Like for, for what you're getting, even as a hobbyist, e even if you're paying a little, like a couple of bucks monthly, it's like uh, a few subscriptions for a Netflix or Hulu or whatever, right? Like you're, you're paying to, for what you're getting is still pretty amazing. And the fact that they've still are giving a part of that for free, I think it means it shows a lot of what their intention is, you know? So I wasn't scared. It was just like, okay, they're finally doing it. I'm just curious as to how they're doing it. Now, as far as how they approached it, I probably wouldn't have done what they did, which is like this massive hammer of changes. Because if there's one thing that I've seen, anytime you do software changes in a company with like mass public, I don't know if it's better to just do it all at once to get out of the way or to slowly bring yourself to that point. You know, I, I don't know. I get your opinion on this as well, but like I'm thinking of changes in like if people are using a product for a very long time and all of a sudden you do like a minor change, I feel like it's easier to do multiple minor changes as opposed to like one huge like hammer that changes everything. And like, I don't, you know, people react differently. And because this change is so dramatic, 
people react dramatically. And like all things, I think it just takes a, a few days of kind of swallowing it and, and realizing that it's really not that bad. You can still use it for what you needed to. I mean, if for most people, I like, I agree with Eddie that the people that are most impacted by this are probably be Tormach and Pocket and C users because they still kind of fall in that category of like hobbyists and they may not be able to make the money from it to like pay for this. So maybe there's a way that Tormach and Pocket and C can reach out to Autodesk and get some kind of special license for their product users, right? Like maybe it's not as expensive and may, but it still helps them in some way that they're paying something, you know, I, I don't know, but that's something that they can look into. But I think from what I've seen, like it's still such a great deal. And like, if you think about how many of us have been using this for free, um, it's like, dude, it's just, sometimes you just have to support the company that you believe in in order for them to continue. Otherwise, how are they supposed to continue and, and get better? You know? So it's like a two way, it's a two way contribution in my eyes. So I have no problem paying for them. Yeah. I mean, like my biggest nightmare would be if fusion 360 in any form just went away. Cause there's like, for someone like me, Mac user, there's, I don't think there's any alternative. Like I would either have to switch to windows or, yeah. We would be screwed. Yeah. Like we literally would be screwed because I, it'd have to be MasterCam, right? Or I don't know what else is Solid there. Solidworks with, you know, some uh, cam, with their cam works or something. Yeah. Oh, it's just, yeah, we definitely don't want them to go away. So, I mean, if HSM, I don't know if HSM works is still out there, that would probably be the closest thing to Fusion. HSM works and Solidworks because um, they're kind of, they were, at one point, they were based on the same like core product. But I think, you know, with all the Delcam features coming into Autodesk, I mean, into Fusion, I don't know if that's still the case. Like, I don't think any of that stuff in HSM works anymore. Yeah, and they have PowerMill too, right? Yeah, so, yeah, PowerMill is an alternative, but then you're starting to get into MasterCam pricing, you know? Mm-hmm, yep. FeatureCam, yep. PowerMill, all that. Like, Fusion's kind of the oddball, like, in the pricing on Cam. Like, you were talking about that other pricing you know the the five figure pricing scenario the 20 to 50,000 is pretty typical everywhere else outside of future 360 um for you know a workable commercial cad cam solution um and it can go up from there right there's much more expensive seats than that overall much more powerful um but probably not as easy to learn <laughs> you know what i'm saying um, I don't think their focus is necessarily on UI. It's probably just on functionality. 100%. I can totally attest to this. Like, it takes me to do an adaptive tool bath infusion, takes me 30 seconds, right? It takes me like 10 minutes sometimes to get the dynamic milling finished because there's like, hun- there's just so much shit that I have to click through in order to get the toolpath. And if, if God forbid, it's like, I like one of their five axis toolpaths is so complicated. Like, but I get it though. Like you, you need to have that ability, right? Cause there are times when like, you can't just adapt your way through everything. There are sometimes you have to use specific, very powerful tools that require lots of input, right? And to do it. So I, I get that the power is there, but it's definitely not easier. There is no education online for it. And if there is, it's kind of like, I don't know if it's certified or usually MasterCam doesn't like that kind of stuff. They want you to pay uh, for training through their distributors or like their educational programs and stuff like that. Yeah, that's a real good point. There's no, yeah, there's no large community of people, of users sharing like tutorial and, and educational stuff on YouTube for anything. Like I haven't seen it except for Fusion. Like even the other Autodesk products, I don't see it out there. Like it'd be hard to be self-taught. You'd have to 
probably pay for some formal training. Yeah, like it's it's like they'll have tutorials, but it's on like the basic stuff that you get with the PDF when you buy Mastercam or something. It's not like there's no NYCC and C of like, hey, this is the best way to approach a bore or something. You know, there's no there isn't much of that. And if there is, it's either like I said, just if someone's nice enough to do it to do that's great. But it's usually not something that is. I, don't know, I guess trust isn't the right word, but it's just not like it's not what we're getting from people like Lars, right? Or we're not getting like that same quality of education to, for sure. It's it's more different in that approach, and um, yeah, it's and it's not user friendly in my opinion compared to Fusion as far as the interface. It's more functional than form, and things are placed in in areas that I don't always understand why this is here, and there's. For every one check mark or box in Vision, there's like five or seven in Mastercam. Yeah, and a lot so of it's, I mean, it's the legacy nature. Yeah, those packages have been around a long time. Uh, like Fusion is probably one of the youngest CAD CAM uh, products on the market. So, you know, they benefit from that <laughs> modern user interface and and kind of greenfield design, right, on some of the stuff. So you, I think that's like, I take it for granted because that's really the only CAD CAM system I put serious hours into. Um, I know people that, you know, if you grew up with SolidWorks, you probably think that's the right way of doing everything. And Fusion would be, uh, you know, it would annoy you, right? For the first year you used it. It's all, that's pretty typical human nature, but still like if I had to switch, it would be pain. I would be unproductive for like a year. <laughs> like I have to speed on something else. Yeah. Dude, I tell you, I've used SolidWorks and I've used what is now known as Creo, PTC Creo. And and Fusion and Master and like I honestly still believe Fusion is the easiest to use. Now there are there are things in each CAT software that are might slightly different, right? For example, like in Fusion, you click Sketch Profile. Like I don't. There's just like really minute things, but they don't they don't slow me down. But it's just I feel like Fusion's interface just flows better as far as the work feel. Like going from one click to the next click feels very good. Sometimes in SolidWorks, I kind of don't understand why it's doing it or what I have to do to do that. And the Creo is kind of the same thing. It's very weird in the way that they set up some of their things. So it, it's definitely the most friendly. And also I think the more like in tune with how people learn now with the tech that we have, like it's more um, closer to what people are using like interface wise nowadays. I think the other softwares are still kind of dated because they're not really forced to change, right? Like you said, the legacy thing, they have to kind of keep things the way that they are and stuff. So whether it's good or bad, it's kind of, you know, up to you to decide. But um, I still think Fusion is, I wish I used Fusion at work. Let's just put it that way. It, it, I'd be a lot, I'd be 10 times faster than I am, you know, using the other software. Winston, I wanted to ask you, of the three of us, you, you probably produce the most um, Fusion-based kind of tutorial educational content how do you how do you feel about i mean most of that's aimed at probably personal license users i mean how, how does does this have any impact on your motivation to keep producing that type of content so at first i i started like so recently i've started uh releasing companion videos to my main project videos where i just break down the cam and everything and there were a couple days where I was like, is it worth me investing my time into this? And I've talked to some other people who are making uh, tutorial content for Fusion 360, and they were a little bummed out by it. Um, I've had some time to sort of just digest all the changes that are happening. 
And there was a lot of misunderstanding uh, initially. Some people read multi-axis milling as including three-axis milling, um, and they interpreted simulation as uh, toolpath simulation. Uh, but to be clear, simulation removal means removing the simulation workspace, not the simulating of toolpaths in the manufacturing workspace. So there, there was a lot of uh, misunderstanding that was fueling the, uh, the negative feelings towards fusion, um, and I've kind of gotten over that. And I've also had a, a, a really good chat, honestly, with someone on the, uh, the cam side of Fusion. Uh, I don't know how much of that I really want to dive into in detail, um, since some of that uh, I haven't cleared yet. Um, but from the sounds of it, um, a lot of the, the changes in the manufacturing workspace were surprisingly deeply thought through um, from as far as I can gather, um, which you have to take with a grain of salt because I heard this through an Autodesk person. Um, but there were a lot of different changes that were potentially on the table in terms of th reaching their goal, which was to try and make this as painful for commercial users as possible while minimizing the impact to hobby users. Uh, and so one of those things was um, removing the G0, removing rapid feed rates. Um, because I know, Chris, if you were to use a free version of Fusion and you exported a toolpath and you were to run it on your machines and you had slow-ass rapids going from like one cut to the other and your boss walked by, he would look at this and just yell at you for how, how much of a waste of time it was. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so it's what they're trying to do is is make it so that it's embarrassing if you're not paying for this and you're using it professionally. Um, and they they did like do some test cases where they they tried calculating the time it would take if your rapids were brought down to your cutting feed rates, and I think it was like average ten to twenty percent uh, change in total machining time, uh, which. As a hobbyist, not that big a deal. Um, as a commercial professional user, it'd probably be a, a quite quite annoying for you. Um, so, I mean, I don't know how effective it will be, um, but that's that's where that change uh, came from. I noticed they left adaptive clearing in there, and I'm assuming I, I didn't see any changes. So I'm assuming it still supports both ways, which in a way kind of helps mitigate that loss of rapids you know it's kind of my understanding from my inside mole is that um the removal of adaptive was something they considered briefly um but they do have people there who are looking out for hobby users and they do rec recognize that adaptive toolpaths are really useful for hobby machines because of that constant load I, like i personally would have understood if they moved that to a more advanced tier um, but like that to me shows that they do care somewhat about the experience of a hobby uh, machinist. So I, I appreciate that they left. Yeah, because that, that would have been a low hanging fruit to remove. Like they could remove that and been done. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Um, yeah, I mean that's that's what separates Fusion from like even like Vectric or Carbide Creator, any other free or like uh, under one thousand uh, dollar toolpath program. It's um force multiplier for hobby machines. I've always thought that you, know, you can do really useful work because of that toolpath on a 
less than fully rigid machine with low horsepower spindles. So, yeah, it, it, it does look like they put a lot of thought into not completely destroying the value case for free version or for the personal license for the CNC users. So, and I, I didn't see any changes on the modeling side um, other than like the drawing module. Um, and actually the, e, the Eagle stuff looks like the same restriction they had before. They've always had a restriction on the free version of Eagle as far as board, board size and layer count. So that didn't change. So yeah, I'm kind of, I think this just needs to kind of settle down a little bit. <laughs> people need, you know, some people aren't going to notice any changes. Some people are going to see some big changes depending on what they were doing with the product. But um, we should maybe like reassess after a couple of months and see. Yeah. And a lot of the changes, like we don't fully understand how they're going to work. And I'm not sure Autodesk does either. Uh, like the limiting uh, rapids to your max feed rate. I'm not sure if that's on a per toolpath basis or if that's on a, uh, it looks at the entire, yeah, all your toolpaths and says, oh, you have this adaptive at a really high feed rate. We'll just make that your rapids. Or if when you switch to a contour operation later, it sees that and between different contour operations that uses that contour feed rate, well, then maybe instead of going at a slower feed rate with a deeper axial depth of cut, I might just do everything with a super shallow axial depth of cut and a super high uh, linear feed rate. So I, mean, I don't know how this is going to shake out. Isn't this kind of pointless in a sense, though? Because once you post that G-code, can't you just change the feed rate or add a line or something? Like, I, I, I don't... How are they limiting this exactly, though? Like, why can't the person afterwards just put in a line of code to, to change that? Well, again, I think, like, a hobbyist might be motivated to do that, to dork around with the code or... Um, but if you think about a commercial user in a job shop, like, that's the last thing they would want to be doing, right? Um, hand editing code... So maybe, you know, I think the point was to make life for the, for somebody, I don't want to say they're cheating, but somebody, um, you know, let's say pushing the boundaries on what's proper, proper, uh, use of the free tier infusion would, would feel more pain than everybody else. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, in my head alone, I've already come up with like two or three workarounds. I don't want to say them though. Cause I, I get, I get the whole thing, but I feel like there should be. I get this. I guess I understand the direction they're going. I'm just curious: is this really going to be helpful or not? And I guess we will never know, right? Only Autodesk will know. I do kind of wonder, like, what's the next change, right? <laughs> so ho hopefully this will um, be the end of the really big ones, and it'll, it'll succeed, right? And they'll, they'll get a, a uptick in, in paid licenses for the folks that really should have been on paid. Um, you know, some percentage of them probably will convert. Some will just move on to something else. I want to do a quick survey. I think all of us, all three of the DFX co-hosts, we're all on paid licenses. I know I am. I think you guys are as of at least last year, right? Yeah. Yeah, I bought in last year during a yeah, sale. So we're not going to be affected directly. Um, we'll just have to kind of keep in contact with the kind of the community at large and see. I'd like to get some feedback after this has had some time to season and kind of see what the shakeout is like, is it really, you know, if it turns out it's still like terrible <laughs> for hobby users, like just makes the machines unusable, like we missed something or, um, didn't realize the impact there. Cause we're not, like I said, I'm, we're not going to see it. You probably will Winston because you'll, you'll hear from your customers potentially. Yeah. Honestly, I think we are the only, um, hobby CNC manufacturer that's affected by the, uh, the automatic tool change. 
um, because we have the tool length uh, offset probe, the uh, the bit setter, so people can load a G-code program with multiple tools in it, and each time M6 is called, it'll prompt you for a tool change, it'll measure the length, and it'll keep going automatically. Um, like, maybe a Tormach with an ATC, um, but no one else is truly affected by the fact that your tool paths will be split up by tool. So Bantam's always worked that way too, and and Pocket and C started working that way with the software update a while back. So they they're all kind of leveraging that. Yeah, um, you're still changing the tool manually, but they go right on after the after you resume and probe and. Yeah. So I mean, there there's there's a couple cases where that might annoy people, um, but again, I mean, these are meant to be speed bumps. Uh, they're they're not gonna stop all abuse. You could like. A freshman in college could write a script to combine multiple G-code programs into one. It's not that difficult. Um, I think what they're just trying to drive at, though, is just to to set the tone, to let people know that, hey, this is not the way you should be doing it. Please consider buying a proper subscription if this is something you really need. And I mean, the other, the flip side of that coin is, you know, Autodesk needs to continue to make the value proposition of the paid license worth it, right? So I'd like to see them continue to enhance the base um, commercial version of Fusion, you know, keep seeing product or keep seeing good enhancements showing up there. So like, the worst thing you could do is pay for the, the paid license and it's really the same, almost the same experience as the free license, right? You're not feel like you're getting anything for it. <laughs> Obviously with the changes it just made, you're going to get something for it now. But um, actually, the way, I guess the way it was before, you really wouldn't have other than you know coming into compliance with the license, but you, the functionality of the free version was was basically the same as the the base paid license. I think people are going to realize it's not as big a deal as they originally thought. Yeah, I think you know Fusion is just a modeling or CAD package on the free tier. It's pretty much the same use cases it had before. Like I, I don't see uh, the limitation on the number of active documents um it does everything it did before you know when you switch over to the manufacturing module that's where you start to see some big changes let's table this and come back in a couple of months and see like what you're hearing basically from the community i'll be curious i think winston you'll probably hear more than the other the rest of us or the, uh chris and i yeah i'm not sure how much of it will be good or bad or even have any merit because right now there's a fairly lengthy thread on the carbide 3d forums of people uh having a minor meltdown. That's what I expect. I expect it to just die down. Because I think about this from the perspective of what if I were a kid with a 3D printer or like a really basic CNC machine? How does this fundamentally affect me? Like what kind of files am I going to export other than STLs? I'm not sending things to job shops for manufacturing, so I don't care about a step file or anything that's uh, that keeps the true geometry of the part. Uh, like if I need to export something for another Fusion user, that's perfectly okay. Um, so it's just, it's really hard for me to see how much, like, again, these are speed bumps. It doesn't really cripple the experience though. It just makes it a little more annoying in certain instances. Um, I'm also curious though, uh, this can be a, a discussion at a later date though, is how would you change Fusion to, um, try and curtail the uh, inappropriate use in a commercial setting. Because there's a lot of things I learned that you 
like they thought through and they ended up deciding it's not really a great idea. Like they could lock down the the post processors, um, but then they'd have to like like block anyone from using a custom post processor. Uh, so there's a lot of ways you could go about this just to stop like someone from exporting something for like a, a hide and hide controller or something. But I don't really know realistically what they could have done that wouldn't be even more intrusive. Yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking. It's like you could have gone through the post system, right, to just free, you know, basically the free tier gets a certain prescribed set of posts that are supported by Autodesk and you can't, you know, no more, you know, you wouldn't be able to install your own custom posts anymore. Um, and the supportive posts would just be like Gerbil, right, the hobby stuff. Yeah, I don't know, man. I don't know what the solution would be. It's it's very complex. I, I don't, you know, limiting posts, I guess, is probably the one of the better ideas. But even then. And I know guys that have, you know, like I'm thinking of, uh, um, I don't know if you want to say his name, but there, there's people that bought like old, the old small desktop size kerns, you know, just for fun, <laughs> trying to get them working again. And, you know, the post processors they're going to need for that is probably would never be considered the hobby class post-processor and it wouldn't be in there. So now that, you know, with the changes that Fusion's made, they'll still be able, if they get it running, they'll, they'll still be able to post from Autodesk. I mean, from a Fusion. So. so, so let's say you were the one that had that old Kern and you want, would it be weird if Autodesk was like, Hey, well, if you pay us a small fee, we'll approve your post-processor knowing that it's not for commercial use or whatever. And then you, now you can use this custom post-processor. Would that be annoying? Well, to me, the small, yeah. I mean, I think the small fee, uh, if I were Autodesk, I'd make it exactly match the small fees for an annual license. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Just <laughs> go license the annual. Here's your, here you go. <laughs> now we support you. Um, yeah, that's the thing. I mean, the, it's not that big a step up today. I mean, it could change. That's what I kind of worry about. Um, but today to get, even for a hobby, not everyone's in the same situation, but like, uh, yeah, I mean, right now it's not crazy compared Relative to, like you were saying, relative to what this class of software normally costs, it's still the bargain of the century, but um, that still doesn't necessarily work for everybody, right? I know, but it's like 25 bucks a month, I think, if we're, if you buy it now, right, for 300 bucks, whatever, for a year. That's not a lot for what it is. Anybody who's trying to do this is really not that much. Yeah, and there's still the free it, tier, which is still very powerful, right? Yeah, you know? like 25 bucks a month. But this is somebody who had, you have to own a CNC machine to be able to use this, right? Or to be the one complaining about this. So like in my eye, in my eyes, if you can afford a CNC machine, you should be able to afford 25 bucks a month for this cat software. And if you can't, then the alternative is like mul multiple thousands, right? So I, I don't think that you, I don't think anyone has the right to complain as of right now from what we've seen. Now, when Fusion becomes ten thousand dollars, then then we can come back to that and you know discuss. But yeah, that's where I mean, it seems like Autodesk is at least for now committed to maintaining a a maker version, right? Um, that's going to be probably free. Um, if it's not free, at some point it would be probably even lower cost than what the base license costs today. I, you know, I think they'll always support that community because I think it's been important to Fusion three sixties growth and, and adoption um, from the early days. So, you know, time will tell, but the thing is, you know, they haven't really become that successful, I think, in like the bigger commercial space. So they still kind of need that community, right? It's not like, you know, I don't know if 
I don't see Mastercam losing a lot of licenses to, or a lot of shops switching over right from Mastercam to Autodesk um, Fusion 360. So they're probably, you know, where's the growth going to come from if it's not coming from that space? Yeah, I, I wish I wish there was a way to move along that transition, but it's like even if the company knew a Fusion being cheaper, they still would just dish it out for Mastercam because that's who who wants to change their workflow, right? If it's been working for them for however many years or whatever. It's it's like so hard to get them to change, yeah. period. Well, for whatever reason that you can think of. So Yeah. Yeah. So um Switching topics. So you guys been busy? What's your what's your uh, last couple of weeks look like in your shop there, Chris? Or shops? You have two shops. <laughs> That's kind of <laughs> crazy. Uh, the so the day job. It's been fun, man. I, I've been working on that Doosan DVF. Uh, I've been I got my first couple jobs planned out for the pallet pool and everything. So I've been proofing out programs and learning all the weird uh, Fanook errors and getting through <laughs> them through Mastercam and stuff. So that's been fun. Um, and I've been working on the uh, live tool lathe, the DoSonnet work as well. So that's been cool. And just like they, like they promise, I'm not really touching the modern jet anymore. So life is pretty good there. As far as the other shop, we we went from shopping for a lathe to like we're about to sign for a lathe. So like I actually pumped the brakes on it right now because I want to make sure we're we're buying the right machine again. But um it looks like we're leaning more toward another Haas lathe and only because they know how to run a Haas control right now. Yeah. Um, and we're, we don't need to hold tighter tolerance than like, you know, a couple thou. It's not that serious. Uh, surface finish is not really important. These are mostly internal parts or things that aren't going to be seen as a final product, but it will be a Y-axis live tool lathe. Okay, so um, not, not the CL. No, we're... we're I'm not good at the brand name models, but basically the 24 turret uh, dual That's, spindle. Oh, okay. I think the DS30 or something. Yeah, It'll something like that. 30 wide. It's the big because they have they have multi spindles, and I'm doing air quotes right now, but they don't actually. The second spindle doesn't actually spin or anything. It just kind of picks off the part for you to like cut it off, or do like a parting to. There's not actual dual rotating spindles type thing. You can't do transfers. All you can do is like pick it up, pull it, and then you you clean it up on the other side. You can't do live tool milling on the other side. There's no encoder or whatever. So we, we wanted a, uh, a actual dual spindle. So I think that's why we're pushing toward the DS30. And then we want a bar feeder uh, that has the three-inch bar capacity. So we're getting close to that. So we're making space in the shop. Uh, we're actually... He's selling a bunch of older machines and I was going to post a post on that. Maybe I'll do that later. But um, yeah, that's basically it. Just still working on triple tree stuff. Uh, we've gone through a couple iterations already, so we're just changing that up. Um, we actually have uh, a 3D printed model of our intake that I was talking about. And we actually had uh, a buddy of his has like a Romer arm. So he helped us put it into like a step file. And then we've been kind of like using that to go off our changes and and you know, doing things like that. So there's still a lot of R&D for that before we begin. But um, the dovetail system works great and from fifth axis and everything's been pretty cool. Um, but that's about it for me. What about you guys? Well, I have air again. That's the big news for me. <laughs> Got the compressor fixed. Yeah, it, was, it turned out to be the pressure switch. So it was like 
I think almost a week without air and I was having serious neo withdrawals. <laughs> it's funny. <laughs> um, yeah. So that I got that working. I've, uh, basically had maybe an hour this last over the last 10 days to, to actually run anything on the neo. Cause I've been programming pretty much the whole week, um, for a bigger machine for a M8 cube, which has actually been kind of fun. Hopefully that hour of runtime wasn't just the spindle warm-up. No, I got a little bit of time in to do um, some more testing with the PCD tooling. And I think I told you I ran it in 7075. The stuff that Chris sent us a bunch of uh, drops a couple of, like a year ago. So I still have a lot of that 7075. Or it's annealed. Um, machines beautifully and finishes beautifully. It's like, I like that material. <laughs> So, uh, especially with the PCD tooling. And then I think um, probably going to start some testing in ATP5. Have you guys heard of that? It's like a alternative to MIX-6. It's a cast aluminum tooling plate, but it's not 7000 series, I don't think. CA, if I can finish that even better than MIX-6, um, this tooling. And then also looking for a material that has that doesn't have as much porosity as MIX-6. So occasionally we run into some issues with that material. I'd never heard of it until like a month ago. Yeah, I, I, I've only noticed it because you mentioned it. And now that I look on like McMaster, I see it right next to the uh, the Mix 6. And I'm like, it's a little cheaper. It's a little stronger. What are the downsides? I'm trying to find the actual alloy composition for both of those materials. Like, I can't find specifics for the Mix 6 at all. Like for everything else, 7075, 6061, you can find out how much is, you know, how much aluminum, how much magnesium, whatever's in it, right? Percentages, but I, I can't find that for either of those materials. So yeah, I mean, this might be proprietary compositions. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, we know we have friends with, uh, electron yes. microscopes, <laughs> but if anyone out there has a mass spectrometer, hit us up. <laughs> I was just curious. Um, cause like some of that stuff gives you a pretty good clue about how it's going to finish. I don't want to chase the material that's just never going to finish fine. Um, I don't think what else is going on. Yeah, so I've been programming for the an M8 cube uh, that my subcontractor has been running some of my parts on that I had to kind of farm off while I was fixing the air compressor. And that's been that's been going good. So I, I've been running some tools that like I wish I could run on the Neo, like the bigger Datron, the Datron Monoblock, which is like their 20 millimeter insert tool. Look, I, I think on the next one we'll get to run that. Like facing is on the Neo is kind of slower operation on the if it's large amount of material like full table material that's a lot of uh, even with the 14 millimeter it takes a long time right to kind of face off a whole big piece of big plate so how about you winston it sounds like you're wrapping up the the stuff that's been keeping you busy the last couple of months wrapping up a lot of things but first i want to give uh chris a little grief after uh complaining that all these shops uh don't want to switch off mastercam because of the learning curve and here you are buying another Haas because you don't want to learn a new controller. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. In my defense, I I'm not the one that has the problem learning a new controller. It's they don't they don't want to spend the time learning a different control. Because uh, I was pushing more for the Herco or some maybe even the Doosan. Um, but they they just you know the familiarity with it and the ease of use for them is is it's a pretty hard selling point to pull them off. So uh, since I'm not the one that's going to be there during the day all day like running it, you know, day-to-day -day type thing. I, it makes sense to them why they like the Haas control. 
So if I'm just doing the setup and proofing and whatnot. I guess I'll let that slide. Yeah, I don't know. To, to me, that... And honestly, it's like it comes down to... Well, it's always nice to buy the better machine, but do we need the better machine? You know, I've been, that's been my... Uh, my conscience, so to speak, like, what is it that we actually need? Not is it that, what is it not what I want It's what do we need? I think that's the biggest struggle that I've been doing is we could buy a more expensive and nicer machine, but do we need it though? Does our product demand, do our customers, does even our customer base demand for it? You know, the whole experience of, Hey, I got this wheel to be near mirror. And then everyone complained about it. It was like, well, shit, you know, like I didn't even need to do all this work. So it's just, I think need and want was, has been my huge struggle and I'm starting to realize we could spend less money and make more money than if we tried to spend more money. And you know what I mean? So it came down to that for, for us. And uh, yeah, so that's why we're kind of leaning toward that right now. We haven't signed yet, but we are definitely very close. And if I don't provide them alternatives in the next week or so, I think they're going to pull the trigger. Well, speaking of changes of what machines are on the shop floor, you, you sent your fucking C back recently, didn't you? Basically, I've had it for over a year now, and I mean, you guys all can tell I haven't really been posting that much about that. So I really just felt bad having it. And like my original contract was for a year and they extended it to uh, this year. So I just got to the point where I was like, I'm not really using it. I don't like having machines that are not in use. It's kind of like it just gives me anxiety a little bit. And I find myself always going to the UMC now to do things. And I've kind of fallen in love with that work holding and that system and workflow. I'd, I'd rather just make it on there now. So in my eyes, it's like, I'd rather just give it back to them and, you know, hopefully they can send it to somebody else. Plus I've been so bad on the content. Like I've been so busy. It's been difficult for me to sit down and make things for it. And, um, after that hard drive crash where I lost, you know, seven projects on the pocket and see, it was pretty demoralizing for me to like go back and redo those. So. Um, oh, maybe they still have my hard drive. You know, if they end up fixing it and I get a bunch of data that I can work with, then I'll have like seven videos to pop out for them. But if not, I, it's, it's unfortunate. But yeah, uh, Winston seems to be more their uh, spokesperson these days as he's been posting way more stuff. I've actually seen a, a lot of other people starting to crop up with um, Pocket NC content. So I, I think I'm going to be overtaken soon. I don't know if you guys saw, like, Pocket and C posted um, Bike Sprocket that one of their customers was doing. And that, that's oh. Like, yeah, do you see that? That's some, some of the nicest work I've seen on Pocket and C. That guy's name was Cedric Evelay or something. Uh, thank you. Yeah, yeah. We'll, yeah we'll, we'll post uh, I have the link for that. But that was pretty amazing work. Like, way better than anything I've ever done on the Pocket and C. This guy in Greece, Johnny... Uh, Johnny Q90? Yeah, Johnny Q90. So you know, he doesn't post that much, um, but he still I see some pretty cool stuff on there. So yeah, I, I kind of was feeling guilty about that too because I just haven't had time to run, um, you know, kind of put out the same content I was putting out on Pocket NC just because I don't run it as often. But uh, it's like that gap is quickly getting filled by other Pocket NC users. It's really good to see it, and like I'm enjoying looking at it from the other side, right? Just a consumer of that content. Like seeing seeing how people push those machines, I think you know, with the new, I'm starting to see it on the new Bantam machine. There's they kind of seeded some out there, um, mostly with I think seems other than Vince, it was people that uh, were kind of new to CNC. So it'll be a while before they probably start posting really interesting stuff. But you know, you guys are next, Winston. So it'd be good to see where 
what the new machine starts doing. I'm ho- well, by the time this podcast drops, maybe within a week or so, we should be able to drop all the details. Uh, right now, I think it's it's looking like um, October will be the uh, full launch. Yeah, so Chris, I was kind of wondering, I think you kind of answered my question, like if you were going to get something else now that you now that the uh the v250 went back if you're looking you know there's lots of new hobby machines out there i don't know if you had any interest in like do you have anything there at home at home i just have the nomads though yeah i i couldn't get rid of it it's i'm too attached to that like nostalgia and that was my first machine so i think i might just be keeping that for life um so I feel about my the Bantam and the like my first Bantam. I still have it here. Yeah, and I'm planning to make my my puppy's dog tag on there, so I'll use that in, in a little bit. Um, as far as like a new machine, my if I was going to get anything, it'd be the Pocket NC Pro, just to be able to have that in my garage. Um, that'd be great. But I think at that price point, I would have to have some sort of commercial like use for it. Like I, I got to make some money off that thing, right? Because it's not—it's not just like a couple grand anymore. It's going to be way more than that. So, in order to justify that, but then th- that's just more to play around with too. I, in the end, if I really needed something, I—I I have the UMC already. So it's hard for for me to invest in like a, a hobby at this moment, just because I'm not home that much anyways. So, if I ever get to the point where I'm—I get to be home at more, and I, there's more time for me. I definitely would consider either like another, like one of these beefier nomads, you know, a higher RPM spindle has always been the dream for me for a hobby machine. So it'd be fun to play around for a little bit. That's something like at some point where if it becomes a hassle to like have to get in the car and drive to a machine, you'll, you'll have that itch to have something like right there on your desk. But it sounds like you don't get to spend much time at home. <laughs> yeah. And if I'm at home, it's like, I'm, I'm training the dog and then if I and if I'm not home then I'm going because the shop is only like three minutes away so I, I usually just I'll pop on a motorcycle and go there real quick it's, it's it's fun for me to take that little drive so well I think we're at the end of our tape you guys uh any last words before I say good night uh, nope I'm gonna save all the fun stuff for the next episode yeah no that's it I think if anyone's still on the fence though there's still a deal going on at Autodesk, right, for Fusion. There's a 40% deal right now. I would jump on that if you're on the fence. Well, I'll say goodnight, guys. All right, have a good one, guys. Laters. Yeah, thanks for the talk.